And a pleasant good evening to you. Welcome to The Works. I'm Keith Williams, your host. I uh, hope you're having a great day today. And we have Hank uh, Dearden with us today as our special guest. Uh, really appreciate you coming on with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, uh, Executive Director of Forest Planet. We're a 501c3 based in Washington, D.C., but uh, we're a charter to help plant trees around the world. High volume, low cost per tree uh, to be uh, out planted in the areas where they have the greatest uh, impact on the soil, the local ecology, um, the communities, the, the greater environment, and, um, and, and then the people in those communities as well. Um, why, why did you start this organization? I just felt there was a need. It's kind of a long story. I was working at a similar organization for years and, um, I just didn't think they were fulfilling their potential and we <coughs> would have, uh, you know, came to, came to, uh, we had this, we had discussions. I'll just put it that way. And I decided that, uh, I just needed to start my own. My background is actually in, in, uh, math and engineering, which I studied, but I've spent my life in uh, marketing and sales and business development and uh, realized that what's really needed here is a, is a good connector between, you know, people who want to do good and businesses who want to do good and people who are doing good uh, around the world that, you know, don't really have, if you will, the marketing chops to get their brand out. And uh, I make those connections and uh, also sort of put together systems for monitoring and evaluation and package it, if you will, so it's a nice, neat 15 cents a tree, and uh, trees get planted, and uh, I sort of uh, connect, connect two worlds, and everyone benefits, so that's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very rewarding job that I have now. Uh, would you consider yourself to be like an environmentalist, or you, have you worked with environmental groups in the past? Um, I, I, what I, Consider my sure. Some people might consider myself an environmentalist. I think I'm more someone just a, um, an empiricist. Uh, an empiricist is sort of, sort of fact-based reality. And the simple reality is, is that we've got a small blue marble that we're, you know, living on uh, amidst, a, you know, a giant, unfathomably huge, you know, black, empty, uh, soulless, uh, warmthless, lightless void. And you know, without our little blue marble, we're we're done. So I think the practical reality is, is that you know you don't kind of mess with your nest; you got to take care of it. Um, so I guess I put myself more in the empiricist. And I guess that maybe if you're doing the Venn diagram, probably overlaps with the environmentalist most of the time. But uh, uh, maybe empiricist is, uh, is is a better description. Uh, I, I don't know if you explained what that term means, but at the, did you explain what that means? Empiricist is someone who's just, you know, uh, show, show me the money, show me the beef, show me the facts. I'm fact-based, you know, uh, evidence. Show me the evidence, uh, show me the empirical facts or the empirical data behind your position or what you're talking about, and then I'll consider that. So the simple, you know, facts of the matter is, is that we have a got a small planet we got to take care of it um I, I think you have you know you have quite a bit of environmentalists or activists or advocates kind of sort of follow that model as well you know they sure. you know you know they want the facts you know not to mention the truth no uh, yeah <laughs> And Not they true, do yeah. a lot of, you know, they do a lot of research. And that's something that, you know, a lot of those groups I just mentioned, they really don't want to, you know, do that. They just want to be out in front, in front of the camera or have a, a microphone in their hand, you know, or something like that. They don't take the time to do all the lead work so that, you know, they can be out there and then they can make sense. 
you know, and by having those facts and information, you know, then that will compel people to, you know, you know, be down with the cause, I, I, I like to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I can't speak for everyone and I'm not going to uh, point fingers or anything, but uh, I, I do get involved with some environmental films. Uh, and one of my consistent frustrations with them is, is that a lot of times they're long on emotion. Like, uh, like I saw a movie about, you know, sharks and how good they are and, you know, apex predators. And it was a long movie and it was long on emotion and very short on facts. And it was very frustrating because the facts were on their side. If they had just sort of done a little homework and sort of explained what apex predator means and how important those are with uh, food chains and systems, it would have helped their cause. But no, they were kind of just doing a big long sob story about how terrible it is to kill the sharks. And it is terrible to kill the sharks and how they were doing it. And they were right. But, you know, mix up some facts with the sob and you, you, you make a more powerful presentation. <laughs> uh, so you would consider your organization to be a non governmental organization rather than a nonprofit. They're both. Yeah, it's both an NGO, non-governmental organization. Um, a lot of times they overlap. Um, so I'm a 501c3 and a nonprofit. So it's both. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so for those of you who are on here and, uh, you know, saying, are there two different things, an NGO and an NPO? Is, is, is there like a, a distinction between a nonprofit organization and a non-governmental organization? I, I think there is. I mean, there's some, but I don't know exactly what it is. I just see, I honestly, uh, it's a good question because I do see a lot of times the two expressions kind of uh, being used interchangeably. Um, but um, so I, I'm sorry, I can't tell you uh, exactly, you know, what's the, what's the, the technical distinction of them, but I, I kind of use both, uh, technically on both. I mean, technically I am a 501c3 nonprofit organization registered here in Washington, DC, operating around the planet. So that's that's the technical. So yeah, I'm a nonprofit and non-government in that I'm not really working through governments. I don't know, work with our government. I don't work with governments in the foreign countries. I work with local organizations that are already up and running and we kind of skate below the, the governmental radar if that helps explain things other people uh, yeah other other 501c3s do work with international governments and so they have those relationships and that's fine that's part of their model um it's not yet part of mine i'm not saying it will never be but it's not it's not how it is now uh, just to get uh, a few details and facts about hank uh for our audience um, Hank is the founder and executive director of Forest Planet, a 501c3 that supports large-scale, low-cost per tree reforestation efforts all over the world. We help plant trees where they bring the most benefits to the region's soil habitat, the global environment, and local community. Uh, Hank said he's happy to now leverage years of experience in the field of advertising, marketing, and business development to benefit the mission of our environmental organization. He is comfortable talking about business of running a growing non-governmental organization, as well as features, benefits of our large-scale tree planting program. Um, so how does that, how does the tree planting program, how does that work? So um, there are, are many uh, forest restoration projects around the world um, that are, if, like, I, like I mentioned, kind of below the radar. But if you're in the developing world and you know, pick a problem, any problem, and you pull the thread, pretty soon you run into forest uh, degradation. And um, because the, uh, the trees, help secure soil and uh if, if the soil goes away then you got problems so as i say you know with, with with trees you got soil and with soil you have options so um you know the trees check a lot of boxes in that regard if planted in the right way in the right species at the right time in the right manner and that they're healthy seedlings and the seedlings have been grown properly 
the transformation can of uh, you know cell sites or the plancing sites as we call them can be quite rapid within a couple of years. And while sure they do uh, do their part to help sequester carbon, you know pull uh, carbon out of the, uh, the you know the greater environment, help cool the planet by degree. It's really about the local restoration because a lot of times what the trees will do is revitalize soil because the tree roots will hold water. And when you have water, you have a chance for at least some life to develop in the soil. Um, all the fungi and all the little bugs and all the germs and everybody down there sort of doing what they do. Soil is a very complicated ecosystem um, and it needs air and it needs water like any other living thing. And the trees kind of help provide that plus other nutrients. So there's a lot going on. It's a real dynamic system. Um, and then when you do have that, um, a couple things happen. A lot of times the trees can be used if, again, the right species are planted in the right place at the right time. Can be, their root systems can help uh, replenish uh, aquifers, groundwater aquifers that have been degraded over time. Because obviously in these communities, if there's no water, then you, you know, then you got, you got refugees. You have what you have going on in like in Ethiopia right now, where yes, there's been a drought, but there has been some water, but they've been cutting down all the trees over the years too for you know, short-term benefit and that leaves the soil exposed. And now you've got a hard pan where like it, the soil's dead, it's now dirt. It's like, it's almost like concrete, you know, it's, it's, it won't support life. But if, if, again, like I said, if done the right way, the trees can help reintroduce water to the soil and the soil can now be uh, arable in a certain way because you can then also uh, intercrop or plant crops around the trees in and amongst uh, the trees and sometimes the trees are fruiting trees like avocados or berries or what have you but a lot of times that they hold the soil and then you can intercrop your, you know, your corn your potatoes your yams or what have you uh, between them why because you now have uh, vibrant soil and you also have water to support the ground crops and now you have a an ecological system that's all sort of working and then simpatico and going in the right direction uh, you know, getting, you know, the, the, you know the, the better the ground crop cover, the better the soil and the better the trees, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of like, those are the machines that we're trying to sort of, you know, get going in the right way. And the tree is kind of like almost imagine a point of an inverted pyramid where once you get the tree planted, you know, a lot of things can start growing up from it and, and, and realize a lot of benefits to the community, including now food security and income security, um, and, and water and, and all the things necessary for the communities to survive. Uh, do you do any type of, of work in California as far as uh, trees is concerned? Because I think in the last maybe about five or 10 years, there's been a lot of wildfires oh, yeah. out in California. So our model is actually much larger scale, but lower cost. So um, our published price and our businesses that we work with uh, it's, it's 15 cents a tree uh, and it adds up because the Western dollar, if you will, the US dollar goes very, very far in the developing world. You cannot plant a tree in the United States for less than three, four dollars, depending on where you are. So it's an order of magnitude higher um, because our costs are higher all the way around, you know, with, with labor and gas, you know, and all the stuff. So we really actually work in the developing world. We're coming up on our first one million trees. Uh, we need to do those, you know, every few months and then every few weeks and then every day uh, to really uh, make the impact. So, for example, we're supporting so far uh, four planting sites in uh, Tanzania in Africa, uh, where I went and visited in June. Again, where the dollar goes very far and um, those combined sites are about 500,000 trees, but I saw dozens and dozens of more sites just in this one little area of Tanzania where we were. Tanzania alone could hold another billion with a B trees. Um, and you can do that for $150 million, you know, or the price of a couple of missiles, honestly. Um, and that's, and that would be completely transformative for that part of the world. Uh, so our model isn't set up to support stuff in the United States. There are other organizations who, who do uh, their model is is different, uh, and that's fine, and that's great. But this is the this is the area where we're focusing is uh, international development. Um, so there there are like uh, you know organizations who are you know working to restore 
of trees in California? Uh, I'm sure there are. I, I, you know, I, I'd have to do a little research, do a quick Google search to find out who they are. Um, I'm sure a lot of them are locally based, and that's great. Um, um, I think the Arbor Day Foundation is involved with that. That's a U.S.-based organization, and their focus is on their their program focus, their tree planting focus is in the states, and and that's great. Uh, but it's just a different model from from how we're organized. Um, you mentioned something about a low cost tree program. Yeah, and I, I I don't know if you mentioned, but uh, did you say it was like fifteen cents a tree? Yes, sir, fifteen cents. Uh, so what cal So how do you you know, come with the price of a planting each tree. So, um, like I said, you know, we're working in the developing world where there's, um, what we do is we find programs that are homegrown that are already up and running. So for example, in Tanzania, where we were, there's a group there called the um, uh, Usim, uh, Friends of Usambara Society, which is a great organization. They've planted millions of trees. They're, they're from Lashoto, which is not too far from Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, they also have a tourist program. So if you want to go up there, it's absolutely beautiful part of the world, a beautiful mountains. And so there's lots of mountain biking and hiking and what have you going on there. Incredible wildlife. Um, but again, they're in Tanzania. Now in Tanzania, a dollar goes really, really far. Um, for example, we saw one of the planting sites um, this past June was up on a mountaintop. And there was 170,000 trees that got planted up there. Uh, and you want to take them as seedlings. And by my, I mean, my tree is a seedling, which is, you know, a seed that's been put in a little container and grown in a nursery so it is healthy. Uh, and it can be ready to buy out plants when it's, depending on the species, you know, three, six, nine inches, however, you know, sort of depends on the species, right? But so once that's ready to go into the field, um, you have to, you know, physically transform it there. So they load these guys all into trucks and thousands of them, many tens of thousands of at a time to get them close to the planting site. But this particular planting site, you were not driving a truck up there because it was almost a 40 degree angle straight up a little narrow deer path that you had to sort of scamper up to get to the planting site. Um, and human beings had to be employed in the local community. And a lot of people wanted to do that work and just carry these things up like five or six trips a day and you know 100 seedlings at a time and they did that for three solid weeks there was 30 of them and they were all paid um everybody was paid at the end of the day ten thousand tanzania shillings which in that economy and in that society was pretty good money they made pretty good money doing that they were happy with that because they can feed their family with that now that translates to four dollars and twenty cents right so you just have the incongruities of our economic system and our society here in the states and you know working at you know dollar dollar is what a dollar is and uh, if you take that same dollar and then you put it in a completely different system where you know prices are lower and wages lower wages are lower but they're at rough equilibrium you're just going to get a lot more leverage out of it so if you will it's like cross country economic inefficiencies if you will I'm sure there's an economic term for it, so I just made one up. <laughs> but th that's what we're leveraging here. And that's to everyone's benefit, because in the United States, people want to plant these trees. And if you can say, hey, you can do it, and it does, it's not financially painful, you, you can still live your life. It doesn't take that much money to have an impact. And they're happy to hear that. And the people in Tanzania, oh, they're very happy because now they've got this, this income and they've got this steady uh, money coming in. Uh, plus, I got the trees, and the trees on that hillside were necessary to revitalize a whole hillside, mountainside, if you will, that had been degraded for multiple reasons, you know, fire, the climate change, uh, encroachment by the villagers. Um, and what had happened is, is that right at the bottom of that, like just south of that downhill from that planting site, there's a big well that had been drying up for years because during the rainy season, it does rain, and if the trees aren't there to catch the rain and sort of spongify the soil, if you will, then that rain just runs right off. It does not get down into the aquifer, and once it's in the aquifers and the wells, then it sort of, you know, eases out over the course of the year, and you got steady water supply, as opposed to a big, you know, rush of water every two, you know, for three months out of the year, and then a trickle 
of the rest, it's very hard to work around. So it was really actually a water management project and everybody was on board with that. So they got paid to help secure their water supply and 170,000 trees got planted and that's a whole lot of carbon over the lifetime of those trees. So everybody wins. Is, is, is there a relationship between uh, uh, trees and flooding? Yeah, like I just explained, I mean, depending on where you are, I mean, the, the, you know, a lot of times flooding is too much water. Sure, you, you know, you get dumped on wherever you are. Uh, you know, if you get 20 feet, 20 inches of water overnight, you're going to flood no matter what. But in some areas, if their trees are properly planted and the root systems are deep, they can absorb the water and hang on to it and channel it into the aquifers where it belongs. And now that reduces the amount of the flood or maybe the severity of the flood or the frequency of the flood. So absolutely, again, the trees are all about kind of spongifying the soil and making it able to absorb that water to keep it from running off and you know wiping out whole towns and, and, and um, communities. Right. I, I was going to say, you know, for example, what if you like live in an urban area? How, how would that work? So, I mean, urban areas can have trees, too. Now, here in Washington, D.C., we have a wonderful organization called Casey Trees. And that they're all about putting trees like on the sidewalk and in the cityscape. And now if you've been to Washington, it's a very green city. Right. We've got good green green. Uh, uh, tree cover uh and there's a lot of organizations like that all around the country i think tree people is in, in san francisco and i know there's one in philadelphia i mean there's a whole association of these uh, municipal tree planting organizations and again i don't know the name but a quick google and you can find yours uh, sure so it cools the local air in those areas provides green space which human beings just like they're just happier just looking at trees and absorb water and, and do cut down on the runoff uh, that that happens. So again, by degree, they can help. It's not it's, it's not a, a you know it's a, it's not a magic pill that's going to solve all the problem. You still have a lot of uh, hard services in cities that you need to rethink. But it's all about how do you properly channel water and uh, you know either get it right to the sewer and or the water disposal system in the proper way, and or into the soil and into the tree. Uh, so that it can be absorbed and hang on to to keep your city green and, and healthy in that regard. So that's a whole separate that's a whole separate challenge that you know I'm I'm only sort of peripherally uh, uh, familiar with, but there's plenty of people who could speak much more intelligently on that. But I know it's a thing. I know what happens, and they do a beautiful job. Heard certainly here in Washington uh, and other cities, but. Yeah, that, that's a big challenge is to sort of cut down on the flooding in the cities. Because again, you're looking when the rain hits the top of a building, it's got to run off. Or if you, the rain hits the street, it's going to run off. You know, it can't be absorbed into the concrete or the asphalt. So you have to have really appropriate uh, and intelligently designed water management systems. And I'm starting to see these things more and more. Certainly like in Tucson, some of the sidewalks, all I had to do was some minor adjustment of the side, sidewalks. So when it does rain, uh, rarely, but it, it does. Um, that water is captured and put into, you know, the you know the causeways next to the streets or next to the sidewalks to green that city, as opposed to you know, then once a year maybe they get like this big massive dump of rain, could be a huge flood. But now you've got soil to absorb it because you spongified your soil, you made that soil ready to receive the rain, and that's really the challenge. Yeah, um, I actually been to Washington DC a couple of times this year oh, and yeah. I, I noticed that there are a lot of tree line streets in DC. Yeah and th that and what we're also unique is that we have a height restriction on the buildings so uh and we got wider streets and lower buildings than certainly New York City and that's on purpose that's on that's by design so more light can get in so when you have more space and more light you're going to have more trees so sometimes you're, you know, uh, you're greening a city, you're kind of fighting for space that someone wants to develop. So that's all, that's a, that's a constant negotiation that every city has to have. Is, is there a connection between trees and water availability? Yeah, like I've explained, um, you know, certainly in the developing world, I mean, some of these, um, some of these wells are drying up uh, because they cut the trees down, right? And when it does rain, the water runs off. 
rather than being captured and being channeled down into the, the well system. So yeah, that's the first thing that a lot of times we look at. It's like, what's the water supply and how can we make that more reliable? And the right species, again, planted in the right way at the right time and in the right manner can do a long, uh, can go a long way towards uh, alleviating that problem, absolutely. Um, so what kind of trees, uh, what kind of trees are, are being planted and where does the seeds come from? Well, the seeds, uh, our tree planting partners, they always collect them locally. I mean, it's, they're all indigenous. Um, they don't, they don't have, to, nothing's ever imported. It's all local. Um, in Tanzania, they, they literally send kids out into the local woods and sort of collect the trees, seeds from the trees without damaging the trees, of course. And they come back with, you know, buckets full of these things for basically free, right? They're just right there. Um, and the different species are, are, are all over the map. There's dozens of them and there's more than I can name. Uh, a lot of the different projects that we have on our website, you know, I, I, I spell out the specific type of uh, tree that's used in that specific location. So uh, in the Kwazizi site, there's like a two or three different species. And again, I forget what they are, um, but those were really for stabilizing the soil. The water uh, resource trees uh, are, tend to be, you're able to plant those more closely together and they grow quickly and they grow straight. Their, their, their root systems are straight down, which is it's sort of like a straw. We're gonna funnel this water straight down into the aquifer. And then sometimes the, the trees and the villagers that we were giving out to, uh, there were like 68,000 trees that we gave out, were more fruiting trees like avocado trees um, and, uh, and fruiting trees like figs and what have you. And those again are for economic security for those local people because what you're asking them to do is not go up and forage in the forest and damage the forest or encroach, if you will, on the forest, leave that be, but uh, they have to do it out of economic necessity a lot of times. So we do is I hey, look, we'll alleviate that economic pressure. Here's an avocado tree that we've, we've grafted such that it starts producing fruit within just a couple of years. And now that's a great source of nutrition for the, for the peoples, for the families. Uh, and then in, in income, they can sell those. So some anywhere from 70, 80% of the produce is sold in markets. So then they got a little income security, they got a little food security, and there is far less pressure and need for them to encroach upon the forest to survive. Um, so uh, it's all kinds of trees. It really depends on the location, how much water you got, what type of soil you got, et cetera, et cetera. But again, the tree planting partners that we work with, they've got the plan, they've got the model, and they present that to me and they say, okay, this is what we want to do on this plot. Here's why, here are the species that we're going to uh, work with. Here's how they interact. Here's how it all, you know, the whole is going to great, be greater than the sum of the parts. Here's how the machine's going to work. And I go, fine, uh, we'll get the money or here's the check that I've already raised and let's do it. So uh, that's uh, that's the sort of the division of, uh, of the partnership. I'm curious to know is uh, what is a carbon credit? I don't really know, honestly. I think it's a certain amount of calculations that go in for some kind of action that you took or didn't take, and that would have resulted or did result in X tons of carbon uh, being either sequestered or not being emitted, and you get a certain dollar credit. It's, it's like a you know, it's, it's a thing and there's trading for it. There's Carter and crafts that caps. So, you know, some organizations have a carbon footprint and they really can't reduce it. So they will buy these carbon credits to offset their own activities. I think it, you know, I, I, there's logic in this, in the concept of it, but I am not a carbon market expert and I don't really get into it. Um, the only time I've really kind of done a deep dive, all I found was a whole lot of inefficiencies and middlemen. And let's just say the actual benefit uh, on the ground uh, was a variable. Sometimes it seemed to be a good thing that people were doing, or maybe they were getting paid for extra money for the doing the thing that they were going to do anyway. And now they had this new asset. So uh, I am not a, it, maybe that should be your next guest to have that someone explain that to you because I think there's a lot of double counting and middlemen and a whole lot of stuff going on. So 
while I do talk carbon about the trees, uh, we don't really make specific claims of sequestration per tree because it's all over the map. Now, I'm a double major in math and engineering. I love measuring stuff. I told you, I'm an empiricist. Show me the facts, right? The reality is, is that how much carbon a tree is going to sequester over its lifetime it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to calculate because of all kinds of reasons. I mean, there could be drought, there could be disease, there could be this, there could be that. And you're really looking at best estimates. Um, I mean, there is a whole study about the carbon sequestration of mangrove trees, which are on the coast. Um, and they're pretty good studies. And, um, you know, they, they all, they admit that they're kind of throwing a dart. They're looking for the middle of the bell curve, if you will. Um, but, and, and, and it's a lot of carbon, it is a lot of carbon, but rather than sort of getting into making all those claims only to be challenged by how did we do the calculation and how are you monitoring it and how you're measuring it? I just avoid it. And I talk about the benefits of the tree. Sure. Carbon's being sequestered. Let's talk about the soil and let me show you the, the food that's now being produced from a field that had been degraded that the trees help revitalize. Um, and that transformation taking less than two years, I point to that story. So I can, that's a, that's a little more empirical story, if you will. Um, and, and knowing that sure, carbon's getting sequestered, but I can't tell you exactly how much. And then because I can't tell you exactly how much, I can't even really tell you how much that credit's worth, you know? So, uh, it's, I know you asked a simple question. That's a long way of saying, I don't know, but I, I, there's a, I have a lot of questions about the carbon market myself. Okay, uh, perhaps you can like maybe do some research on that and, uh, and you know, we'll have you to come back. Well, you know what? Um, with all due respect, I think there's other people who are smarter than me. I'd love to come back. I, it's, it's not that, I promise you. But I, again, I kind of steer clear of it because I don't really need it. We can tell, oh, some, okay. we can tell some really good stories about tree planting that don't have to sort of wander into the whole carbon credit offset market. We've got some great stories about water restoration and food and soil and income security. And, and after a while, carbon is, don't forget, it's, it's, an, it's an invisible gas. It's a necessary one, but we've got better stories than that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, now we, I do know that there are certain parts of the world that you know, still use uh, wood for for heat yeah. you know, and cooking and things of that nature. Uh, is there like an alternative instead of them, you know, cutting down trees for firewood? Oh, sure. I mean, so uh, it, it really sort of depends. I mean, you can, you can, like in these forests that we're working on, you can, as long as you're working in the community, you can intelligently go through and glean firewood out of them. Just don't clear cut, right? Because you, you can draw, you know, every 10th, 20th tree down or cut some limbs here and there. Because like in all these places, firewood's a thing. They, that's, that's where they get their energy. That's it, right? So, um, if you're intelligently managing the resources, you're going to be okay. Just don't go in and wipe out like whole, you know, acres and hectares of wood for firewood. It's, it's a mess. But if you intelligently sort of draw down some wood out of it, you can do it. Now, having said that, a lot of the communities and everyone I talked to when I was in Tanzania would love to have some of these solar stoves, right? And these are fairly cheap systems that capture solar energy and direct it into a spot. And so people cooking at home can boil some water really quickly uh, and then use that water to either eat their house or cook their food or what have you. Uh, and they want these, but the price needs to keep coming down. The good news is that some of these communities, now that they have trees generating income for them, you know, after a little bit of a time, the one village I was, I was talking at, I talked with the village elder and he goes, he absolutely wants these, but what they're going to do is start to pool their resources. So rather than, you know, having one for each individual home, they will have multiple of them at the village center. So you just sort of walk over, boil your water and walk home. 
and all that, so or strategically put them around the community, so as a shared resource, and that's beautiful. So it's like everybody's got a shared stove, and and you know that works together. And the more you get, the more you get. And again, every time you put one of those in, it's just that much pressure been reduced on the surrounding environment to uh, to go uh, capture wood for firewood. So that's that's one major solution that we're we're seeing. Is there a relationship between uh, tree planting and uh, climate change? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's trees cool the air, uh, local climates. Um, and then, you know, the summation of all those local locally cool, cooled areas will impact the greater environment. So absolutely. And, and, and again, it's, it's, it's not only just the carbon that's seen being sequestered by the tree, it gets just too much of the CO2 is in the atmosphere. Um, when you're revitalizing the soil around the tree, that soil is also absorbing carbon to create all the microbial life in the soil. So you get a double whammy actually uh, to take that carbon out of the air and reduce the, uh, the greenhouse blanket effect that's causing the climate change and global warming that we're experiencing. Is it the only solution to climate change? Probably not. I don't usually believe that there's only one thing that can solve it. That is a big part of the answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there, are there any programs or policies that you support? For what? Uh, in relationship to what you do, you know, or the environment in general? Well, I mean, I like the trend towards the renewables. Absolutely. I used to work at a renewable con uh, company. So like in terms of policies and programs, um, increasing support for distribution of uh, renewable energy uh, sources, offshore wind in the United States should be a thing. It's not really, it could be. And that's a huge source of uh, energy that we have right there. I don't know why it's there. It's, it's usually the fossil fuel companies. I'd like to see a lot of the, uh, terms of government policy, there's a big support for the fossil fuel industry now. I'd like to see that go away over time, phase that out. They've been subsidized for years. They're the first people to talk about free market, but then also talk about screaming and yelling when you start to take away their government support. Um, so absolutely uh, alternative uh, uh, fuels, um, really investing in battery development that's going to be like the if you know if there's one sort of real high fulcrum point to help with uh, alternative energy sources it's going to be battery storage a lot of times a uh, wind blows at night when people uh, are using less electricity in general if you can hang on to that such as there during the day or use the solar energy that was generated all day during the night and vice versa it smooths out supply and demand um, so battery technologies batteries uh solutions uh, need to be, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a constant thing. And right now they're, they're heavily uh, dependent on lithium and lots of heavy metals. That's also extractive. So that's also a, you know, a problem. So other other battery solutions, I think, you know, carbon nanotubes and carbon fiber, stuff like that, batteries. Again, I'm not an expert at batteries. That could be another whole show, but I think that's like the key Hate to use the expression holy grail but that's a lot what the, that's the word that a lot of people use that you know the, the country the economy that figures out high reliability low cost low impact uh, electricity slash energy storage visa batteries is going to have a huge leg up in the in the, in the next decades worth of a uh, global economy so you have two main focuses here uh trees feed the world what does that mean to you well, like I said, I mean, trees help feed the world because obviously the trees will, you know, fruit as well, well but they secure the soil. They allow the, um, the, you know, the soil and to be revitalized and now become arable. And that's the number one thing. They hang onto the water and they make the soil arable. And, you know, without the soil, you got no food, right? With the soil, you still got challenges, but, you know, you got to get it to market and, and all that kind of stuff, but at least... It's a different set of challenges, but with no soil, you got no choice, no nothing. So that that's really the connection. Okay, then we have trees and social stability. What does that mean? Well, like I mentioned, uh, you know, if these communities have a steady source of income and food security, 
then you have a little more social stability in the developing world. I mean, you look at a lot of places where there's, you know, civil war going on and people are fighting over limited resources. A lot of times what stimulates that is, is extreme poverty. You know, you know, what we have in the United States here is poverty. Don't get me wrong. It's not a, you know, it's not a cakewalk. I'm not saying it is, but what you're dealing with in a lot of developing world, there's a billion people who are living on less than a dollar a day. And we're talking extreme poverty, do not know where their next, next meal is coming from. And, you know, and those kinds of communities are rife for exploitation or someone coming in and selling them a bill of goods and all kinds of um, upheaval and, and conflict over limited resources. And, you know, the better fed people are uh, and the better, uh, the more stable income they have, uh, the less vulnerable they are to extremism. That's just a, that's just human nature. So that's what I mean by that. Uh, you also have a blog too. So uh, talk a little bit about your blog. Well, the blog, um, it, it's, it, uh, it, it's, it's really where things are happening. Uh, you know, we talk about the events that we produce there or events that we're part of, uh, the trips where we've been to, uh, other research that we've done. Um, we, we do talk about carbon. There is, a, there is a blog post in there about blue carbon and mangroves uh, and then the food, the food connection. But we're really... The, the point of the blog is to really try to educate people that trees are more than carbon, you know, and they are carbon and that's a very real thing, but there's a lot more to it. It's about the social stability and it's about the income security and food security and, and all the above and water security. Uh, and then we talk about the fun stuff we have, like going to events. And for example, we were, uh, we had the honor to be working with DC United, which is our local soccer team here, professional soccer team here in Washington, DC. And they had a sustainability night earlier this year in April where they planted, uh, raised enough money to get uh, one tree plant for every, planted for every ticket. So that was 20,000 trees in one night, but it only cost $3,000. So, it, you know, 20,000 people in a stadium, everybody basically, you know, 15 cent out, cents out of their ticket went to uh, plant a tree. And I, I would probably made that event carbon negative if, if I did the calculation, but I didn't. I just know that 20,000 trees got planted and they're quite transformative of where they're planted. So all that's sort of listed in the blog. We keep a running commentary about our activities and, and, and what's going on. So we definitely invite everybody to visit that. Sure. Do you know of like any sports franchise that are doing something similar to, to what Washington is doing? Well, uh, funny you should ask. Uh, there's a local baseball, there are baseball teams around the country that we've reached out to um, that are interested and um, uh, more on that later, hopefully. Uh, these are major league baseball, but also some minor league teams um, uh, around the country in the Midwest. I visited some. Uh, believe it or not, there's a whole league on professional ultimate Frisbee, which is a thing. So ultimate disc league and they have teams around the country and every year for the past three years for their championship weekend, they've planted anywhere from 25 to 50,000 trees to help make their whole championship final four weekend, if you will, uh, carbon negative or at least carbon neutral. Again, we didn't do the calculation, but, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of trees and it probably took a big dent out of their carbon footprint. Um, and so they're kind of on the forefront of that. Uh, here in Washington, D.C., we've got a professional ultimate disc league called the D.C. Breeze. And they plant a tree with every ticket sold all season long. You know, and they'll, they'll only sell maybe six, 8,000 tickets caught, you know, max all season. But, you know, th that's more than other folks are doing, and it adds up. So, um, you know, it, it's a good program that we're trying to exploit. Um, fingers crossed. I had some great meetings uh, just in August. I took a road trip to the Midwest and stopped in with some major colleges that you've heard of that have very large football stadiums, some of the biggest in the, in the country. And they're interested in working with us, with us either for you know, their football season next year or even their basketball season this year. So it's kind of like the whole concept of you want to plant a tree with that is easily communicated and it's affordable and it's effective and they want to work with us. So that's a definitely, you know, I would love to have more case studies uh, within the next few weeks or a few months to be able to, to point to. Now, at the same time, we're also looking at the performing arts groups. So, you know, bands go on the road and they fill stadiums of, you know, 5, 10, 50, 20,000 people, whomever, right? And those all have carbon footprints. They are traveling, you know, they've got a whole crew, they're in airplanes, 
they've got a footprint. Maybe they could plant a tree for every ticket. You know, it's 20,000 here and 50,000 there and 5,000 there. It adds up and really it's a big thing. Um, I have a great chat going with a, a small ensemble uh, based in England of all places, and, but they travel a lot. And, you know, they're, they're aware of their carbon footprint. They want to do something along like these, along these lines. So we actually have a chat with them next week and we'll get something together. And again, it's affordable for them and it's effective and it's easily communicated. So all the above, you know, the venues, sports teams, the concert uh, venues, um, and then even the performing artists them, themselves, if they want to be involved with this, uh, I'd love to chat with them. Absolutely. Uh, what if uh, you have a nonprofit organization that wants to do something similar to what you're doing? Um, so what kind of pointers or what kind of direction can you give? Them? I mean, you know, it's like, it's, uh, there's lots of models, there's lots of ways to do it. My model is the connector model where all I focus on is this, you know, communications and uh, you know, education, educating people whenever and wherever I can. And which is why I totally welcome uh, being a guest on your show. I really appreciate that very much. Helps us get the word out. Uh, that's what I do. And then I work with the businesses like the teams and all the stuff that I've been talking about. Um, and then, uh, then it's a lot of research in terms of finding out who are the right organizations to funnel money to around the country. Um, that's not an easy process. I, it's a long, I do a lot of research and a lot of background and I have a third party country company to help me do that, do the vetting, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that, that's just, that's just my model. And that's what it is. So anybody can do that. You just got to roll up your sleeves and certainly it takes money to get it going. Uh, but you know, that's what I did and started in 2017 and work for, for the, was able to work for the first three years without any salary until, you know, money started coming in and now I make a very, very modest uh, salary. I still have to do other jobs to keep this going, but um, our growth is steady and um, there's, there's, need, there's need out there. It's just a matter of how, how, how tight of a network can you put together? Um, you gotta just check all the boxes. So that's our model. Uh uh, on your spare time, I would like you to do some, uh, you know, research on an, uh, you know, organization called Gov South for a Green New Deal. Who? I'm sorry, who? Uh, Gov South for a Green New Deal. Okay. Um, I, I think that uh, that would be something that uh, that organization would definitely be, you know, interested in doing. I'm actually a part of the Gulf South for a Green New Deal in okay. the Alabama hub. Well, what do you guys do? What's your, what's your, what's your model? <laughs> well, we, uh, well, basically we are about social justice and we deal with, I mean, not social justice, but environmental justice. Okay. Um, we, uh, a lot of the things that are on our radars, of course, is uh, uh, food security, um, you know, eliminating uh, pollution, uh, clean water, clean air, um, you know, working to, uh, you know, have a, a healthier plant. Sure, great. Yeah. Uh, so if you get some time, you can Google, you know, you can uh, do a Google search on them and you can you know, kind of get more information about, you, you know, uh, what they do, what their model is. And if, if it's something, uh, is an organization that you'll be willing to work with, I do encourage you to contact. Okay, I'll check it out. Okay, and uh, we're going to get ready to close here. There's some great information here. So re really, uh, really enjoy it. Uh, very educational. Uh, now, hey, how can uh, people be able to reach you? They, you know, want more information. They want to contact you. Sure. Yeah. It, it, the best thing is uh, Forest Planet, one word, forestplanet.org. It's our website. So our phone number, our address, um, you know, the general email is all there. Uh, as you mentioned, like, like the blog section, the latest, all that information. So, yeah. Uh, or we can find us on Facebook, 
And that's facebook.com forward slash go negative, as in go carbon negative. So that's our Facebook link as well. So there's all kinds of information there. But forestplanet.org, absolutely. Okay, so before we wrap it up here, are there any like last words that you would like to mention to the audience? I think we've covered everything. And I really, like I said, I want to thank you personally for uh, giving me a chance to, to, to speak to the, your community. I appreciate it. And, and this will work no matter where you live, whether you live in an urban community, a suburban community, or a rural community. Is that correct? I'm sorry, which will work? Uh, urban, suburban, rural. Well, there are different models for different organizations. Like I said, you know, we're in the developing world, but there's plenty of organizations working in the urban urban space as well. Uh, there's a little different challenges and little different stuff. So that's why they have different models. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, um, Hank, I want to thank you for um, taking time out of your schedule. I know that uh, you've been very busy. Oh, yeah. And so I would be the first to say thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to to be on this podcast. Uh, the information here was definitely uh, worthwhile, very informative, very educational. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And of course, you know, I, you know, learned some things too. Uh, I don't call myself an environmentalist. I'm an activist. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a community organizer. So anytime that, you know, we have this sort of information, it's, it's, it's a learning, you know, it's a time for learning, you know, for me, you know, because I got to get educated, you know, on this stuff as well. So, you know, so that I can tell other people. Great. Good stuff. Um, really appreciate that. Thank you. And we're going to end here uh, on that note. Uh, Again, we want to thank Hank Dearden for being a part of, of you know, this podcast, certainly a very important podcast because uh, we only have one planet and we definitely need to do all we can to take care of it. Sir. Yep. Okay. Uh, thank you everyone for tuning in to this uh, episode of The Works. I'm Keith Williams, your host. Hope you'll be back with us next time. Until then, Enjoy your evening. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.